In the early days of medical cannabis, growers learned that a particular strain they grew had more of a medicinal value than usual because of the feedback from the people who smoked it. A grower would hear that it helped stop someone's seizures, or it decreased pain, or maybe a Parkinson's patient's tremors subsided for a while. After enough comments like that, a grower knew that this particular chemovar was one to keep. Around 2009, though, the first publicly accessible cannabis analytics labs began to open, and cannabis producers could, for the very first time ever, get reliable scientific potency testing, and they realized that many of these especially medicinal strains contained cannabidiol, more commonly known as CBD. Because there is no federally allowed cannabis market in the U.S., we now find ourselves at a moment where CBD is sold separately and differently in the four existing markets of state-regulated medical, state-regulated recreational adult use, the unregulated market or black market, and the international market for CBD isolate. Production and distribution of CBD right now is wild and volatile, and the markets continue to crash against each other as price, availability, and quality between the different markets continues to shift. Anyone involved with cannabis business or caring for patients will benefit from an understanding of how these market fluctuations will affect them. If you enjoy hearing frank discussions that dive deep into cannabis health, business, and technique, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos, too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Seth Crawford. Seth is a deinstitutionalized academic with a master's in public policy and a PhD in sociology. His focus has been on the political economy of cannabis. For years now, he's been consulted by lawmakers and policy specialists for a better understanding of how the underground cannabis economy works. He's now co-founder of Oregon CBD, a company researching, developing, and wholesaling high CBD cannabis seeds. Today, we're going to talk with Seth about the past, present, and future of the CBD market. Welcome to the show, Seth. Thanks so much for having me. So, Seth, you know, until the research on CBD began to be more readily available in media everywhere, you know, there really wasn't a CBD market at all. But but now, through the efforts of hardcore CBD evangelists like like Martin Lee and Dr. Ethan Russo and Kevin Jaudry and Lawrence Ringo and, you know, lots of others, including the, the Sanjay Gupta TV special, um, a profound search for whole plant CBD is in the hearts of patients everywhere. When do you think that we first began seeing something that we could call the CBD market? It's a good question. Uh, you can almost look at it as something that has organically emerged with the availability of CBD-rich plants. Um, I listened in to the uh, oral history with Kevin Jodry, and it was absolutely, uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, my personal experience with the CBD market started uh, really with the availability of ACDC clones, um, and so hearing that oral history was was uh, really informative, and it was neat to neat to hear how it all ended up forming. Um, ACDC in Oregon, where I'm at. Uh, really became available after about 2013. That's when it kind of hit the scene. And that was the same year that uh, industrial hemp production took off in the state of Colorado. Uh, now, this, this occurred before the passage of the 2014 Federal Farm Bill, which allowed industrial hemp production in the United States to happen. Uh, the following year, 2015, is when I would say the, the CBD market really exploded. It really took off, uh, just in the sense of product actually being available for, for consumers. Um, that, that, just that plant availability it seems to be the, the, the big driver. And as, you know, obviously, as we've seen, as more people get into the production side of CBD, uh, it's become more available. The price has gone down, and more and more people are becoming exposed to it today. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense too, because, you know, it really is not the academic papers or even, you know, it's to a certain degree, it's the media attention. But the thing that's really driving the CBD market from what I've seen is the fact that people are actually getting relief from it because someone will get relief and then they'll tell their sister and their sister-in-law and their uncle and their kids. And then suddenly now you've got five more people who are looking for CBD and then they tell someone. So, you know, we know that referral is the is the best marketing and when people get relief man they just they want to talk about cannabinoids they do they really do and the fact that it's non-psychoactive is uh you know it's really a godsend i think for a lot of people who are suffering and find some relief from cbd Uh, and i know there's quite a few people um even in the still in the medical marijuana community who don't view cbd as something other than uh you know a passing fad uh they view it as snake oil because maybe they've tried it and it didn't work for them but when you see the look on on a on a child's face or on a grandparent's face when they have some sort of suffering relieved from it, you know, whether it's uh, Dravet syndrome and epileptic seizures in children or osteoarthritis from uh, age and just, uh, you know, long-term degeneration for, for, um, for the elder members of our communities. Uh, it's, it's real and it, it strikes a pretty powerful chord for those of us that are participating in this, uh, this, side, of, this side of the cannabis market. Right on. So generally today, we're going to be focusing mostly on cannabidiol or CBD. But, you know, CBD is only one of over 100 cannabinoids that are in whole plant cannabis. And, and, and before we move on, I just want you to touch on, you know, other emerging markets for cannabinoids because, you know, I've seen, you know, people marketing CBN, CBG, um, uh, THCV for appetite suppression. Um, are you seeing the the, the the market for uh, other cannabinoids other than cannabidiol coming um, coming along as well. They will be, yeah. You know the the thing about plant breeding, uh, at least the way that we've experienced it. Uh, it takes about six months to develop a new variety, and that's when you're really, really making progress. Um, we're lucky enough now to have a lot of analytical labs on board. Uh, we have PCR screens that we can use um, with some folks that are putting that stuff together for us. Uh, the The emergence of new cannabinoids, I think, is going to accelerate. Now, most of them are not on the market at this point, uh, but they will be in the next three to five years. CBD was really the, the forerunner, I think, on the, uh, the non-psychoactive cannabinoid side. It, it's really created a, a groundswell, and it had a uh, – in terms of just having, as we were talking about before, having people from a range of backgrounds and ages and life experiences uh, being more open and accepting of a, a – a compound that's coming from a cannabis plant simply because it's non-psychoactive. Um, it's, I, I think CBD has definitely paved the way for, for uh, future inroads in that, in that department. Yeah, yeah, I buy that. So, you know, after that um, Sanjay Gupta special on television that focused on the wide-ranging uses of CBD, you know, lots of folks like the Stanley Brothers in Colorado, you know, renamed high CBD strains that had they had come across and began to market them aggressively, and they found a really warm welcome by both the media and patients. The the challenge being, of course, that the, that the patients believed that it was only the Stanley Brothers Charlotte's Web that was the only strain that had health benefits, and that was certainly not the case. And a lot of people fault the Stanley Brothers for their approach, but it was it was really the media attention that they garnered that helped explain the benefits of whole plant CBD to everybody and got it to reach middle America. You know, that's when my family back in the Midwest started talking to me about it was after the Sanjay Gupta TV special. So, so to what degree do you think that the heavy media coverage has led to that fast rise in the popularity of CBD? Oh, it could not be, could not be overstated. Uh, you know, that's the thing with just about any type of idea or product, though. <laughs> as soon as it's picked up and moved into popular consciousness, either by media or today, uh, active social networks on social media, uh, people moving ideas around. Um, once it gains traction, it definitely takes off. I mean, there's some fascinating research uh, that looks at the popularity of specific songs and whether or not, uh, you know, a, a popular a popular tune will catch on. You know, there's formulas for crafting music that will sell millions and millions of, uh, uh, you know, records or whatever. 
the same thing is probably true when it comes to either cannabis varieties or you know any other idea. It it just comes down to being able to get it out into the marketplace and have people pick it up. And that I, I understand where you're going with the Stanley brothers and, and Sanjay Gupta. It definitely had a positive impact uh, in terms of being able to get the word out. Um, the dangers with something like that when you have one particular plant that gets identified as as the be all and end all is that you lose out on on the amazing diversity that is actually present in the in the cannabis family yeah and it confused a lot of people right because even though it was wonderful to have people talking about cannabis as a medicine there was also you know a handful of misinformation mixed in to the reporting and so now folks like you and I and our and our and our contemporaries have to go and uh, kind of help people unlearn the first wave of information that came out and help them fine tune it so that people can get the the proper medicine that's going to work for them. Yeah, no, no kidding. And it, I mean, the same thing is is true. I would say on the on the uh, THC side as well. People go to a dispensary and they're asking for something that's going to make them uplifted. Uh, that's going to have a, a positive euphoric feeling for them or give them pain relief. And you know, the the thing that they've been taught is indica and sativa. It's, you know, the little bit more sophisticated version is narrow leaf and broadleaf plants. But you know, the reality is, and you had Ethan Russo on uh, a few weeks ago. I, it, we, we know that it's not just those things, it's terpenes. And in our breeding program, we've noticed that uh, in open pollinated F2 generations, we can find every combination of terpene and plant shape imaginable. Uh, if, it's a, if it's a properly bred line, you can find anything in those. So it's different, different small things like that where, where the folks who are, who are learning and doing it by experience um, – end up having to correct some of that information as we go. But, you know, that's, uh, I think that's science, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's totally. Of- <laughs> <laughs> I also appreciate that you're, uh, you're plugging some of my former shows. You've already plugged two in, in our interview, so I appreciate it, both the, the oral history of CBD with Kevin Jaudry and, and the, the two shows that I've done with uh, Dr. Ethan Russo. So I'm glad, that, I'm glad that you've had a chance to listen to the show, too. Uh, Definitely, and these are these are good people doing great work. Um, it's it's a very small community, I think, of of people who are really out on the the forefront of this, and it's it's neat to be a part of. You know the 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 misinformation about CBD that we were talking about just a moment ago. You know, I think that's um, what has led us to a lot of these CBD only medical marijuana laws at states. Because anybody, you know, these legislators who are 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 uh, you know pushing for CBD only laws because they don't want to involve evil THC, um, they just are missing the point. They don't understand the importance of the entourage effect, and that you really need all of the different cannabinoids in the plant to you know create the best medicine and secondarily a lot of people especially cancer patients and others it's the THC part of the plant that is healing for them I mean CBD is super healing and can be used by every human because we all have endocannabinoid systems but really depending on what your issue is it may be the THC that part of it that's the medicine for you and I think a lot of those legislators miss that a hundred percent and you know one of the issues that you I, I think is probably contributing to that is the piecemeal approach uh, from state to state with different type of legalization frameworks. Um, what, what I've seen is a lot of the more conservative states, uh, particularly in the South, end up passing these CBD only laws. And they're, I, I don't want to say they're, they're totally misguided, but I think they're, they're pushed in a particular way uh, by people who have vested interests in the production side and uh, who are trying to develop drugs that would fit whatever you know laws they come up with in those places you know there's certain certain laws uh they call them cbd on, uh, cbd only laws but you can have up to five percent thc in uh in in your uh extracts and compounds um to me that's not a cbd only law that would be more like a one to one uh law which is great and like you mentioned that's probably one of the more efficacious uh medical applications is is the synergy that's involved between thc and cbd in the body. Um, <laughs> but it's led to a very, very interesting patchwork of uh, legislation across the country that in some cases makes good sense and provides access, and in other cases just is uh, bewildering. 
Yeah, and, and since we're talking about the CBD market today, I think it's important to point out that, that that patchwork of laws has made a really weird market where where at least two things are happening. The first thing is is that uh, the patients are are leaving their state and going to another state either either temporarily to just make a purchase or permanently so they can have a long term supply of whatever part of the cannabis plant that they need that's not available in their state. So that's number one. And number two, the, the simple arbitrage where people are going to another state, you know, buying thousands of dollars of whatever specific medicine is needed in their locale and then bringing it back and then distributing it amongst their friends and family. You know, if, if, if we had sane national cannabis medicine law, then this kind of arbitrage and, and, you know, cherry picking where you were going to purchase from state to state would just not, not been happening. I mean, this is, this is not people trying to be criminals. This is people trying to work around an unworkable law. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's uh, what you're saying too, is highlighting just the, the overall legal landscape in the United States. It's a, it's to me, it's fascinating. We can basically divide it into, uh, you can look at it as a, as a tripartite division between, uh, in, in terms of legalization going forward in the United States right now on, on one component, you have medical and recreational laws or CBD only laws that are either passed uh, through citizens initiatives in states or by state legislatures. Um, you have large pharmaceutical companies who are pursuing FDA-approved uh, cannabinoid drugs for very specific conditions. And then you have uh, industrial hemp, which is uh, federally legal, and the products that come out of industrial hemp programs can be shipped to any state legally in the United States. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, in addition to the cannabinoid research that's going on with that, there's a lot of agronomic research as well. And having those three... <laughs> three totally separate divisions um, that are all operating simultaneously with different restrictions and different you know, barrier, barriers to entry for both uh, people who are in that marketplace or trying to consume products from those marketplaces. Uh, it, it's just created, a, <laughs> it's created all kinds of issues, while at the same time providing uh, you know, just enough gray area, I think, for a lot of people to move forward with uh, some pretty interesting work. And, and, you know, it gets even more messy because of the lexicon is so messy. I mean, at people's usage, right? I mean, you know, a lot of people argue back and forth between using the word marijuana, which has got a sordid history versus using the word cannabis, which is more accurate and scientific. But, but even beyond that, you've got people who are in industrial hemp who like to call their product cannabis because technically it's cannabis sativa. And then you've got people who are in medical marijuana, which is also cannabis sativa, who want to also use the word hemp because maybe they were, you know, grow hemp for victory people back in the day. And so the industry itself doesn't even have a stable lexicon where people who are in what what you and I would probably see as different product categories using each other's vocabulary, which which not only makes it more confusing for investors, but just totally loses patience. Yeah. And the, the legal definitions do exactly the same thing. Uh, 100% agree with you. I mean, you look at the, the federal guidelines and marijuana, quote unquote, is any type of cannabis that contains THC uh, over 0.3% by weight. That's the definition that's used. Um, anything else is considered industrial hemp. When we step back, it's uh, all of it is cannabis. It's all part of the same larger family. Um, and all of these divisions that we've put in front of us, whether it's from a marketing perspective or from a legal perspective, are all social constructs. I mean, the, <laughs> the plants are the same uh, yeah. <laughs> in the same way that we've created. You know, I, I think about it from a, from a social science perspective. Race is, a, is probably the best example of it. We have no, uh, no real genetic difference, not a, a meaningful difference between the racial categories that have been constructed over the years. Um, you know, if you, you take one person and analyze their genome from one particular race uh, that they've been assigned to and you compare it to another person from a different race, you will end up with more similarities than you would get if you had taken two people from the same race and analyzed their genomes. Um, same thing is true with cannabis. Uh, these are socially constructed boundaries that are, that are basically vestiges of 20th century prohibition mentality. So now that we've established pretty thoroughly um, that there is a CBD market and that it's growing really quickly, um, and and including both the licensed cannabis market or medical mar marijuana market, and and 
And if you if you know this, the the gray market, what would would you calculate the total size of the CBD market to be in the United States? You know, honestly, and this is weird. I mean, this is my area of expertise, but I have no idea. And I think that that would be the honest answer that anyone uh, anyone who's looking at this seriously would would tell you. Um, I know that it has dramatically expanded in the last two years, uh, in particular, and a lot of the uh, high CBD. Um, hemp or you know, CBD flowers that are being produced in the United States, at least under the industrial hemp program, uh, get exported to other countries. Um, Israel is a very large buyer. There are a lot of people in uh, a lot of companies in Europe that are creating, uh, basically using high CBD flowers as an alternative to tobacco for uh, smoking cessation, or at least tip- nicotine cessation. Um, it's it's large, and like we talked about earlier, I think the more that's available, the more <laughs> you're going to end up seeing produced, because the demand is actually there. Um, you know, I did this back of the envelope calculation uh, last year, as some legislation was going through the uh, going through the Oregon legislature that was going to be changing some aspects of the industrial hemp program here, and the number that I came up with was specifically for horses for aged horses, old horses with arthritis. Uh, because one of the, the cool things that has been uh, demonstrated with CBD is that it, it not only helps people, but it also helps animals as well, specifically with uh, age-related degeneration. Uh, arthritic horses are, are large animals that would require a lot of CBD. But you know it's basically 16,000 acres worth to be able to treat <laughs> all of the horses in the United States. That's horses, right? I mean, there's other animals too, and and people could probably benefit from it as well. And uh, <laughs> at this point, we're getting close to having that many acres. Well, actually, we're this year we will be over it uh, nationally. Um, uh, I think the state of Kentucky has 14,000 acres licensed. I know the state of Oregon has 3,000 acres licensed this year. Um, it's it is getting very large. Um, now, compared to the THC market overall in the United States, it's still smaller um, in terms of total total amount demanded, total amount produced. Uh, but I think I think we're going to see a change in that definitely within the next ten years. Yeah, isn't that an interesting aspect of this? Right? I mean. Uh- CBD availability is low and the demand for it is is on a wicked rise and yet um, nearly all of the licensed cannabis producers in the United States emphasize high THC strains as their flagship products but the TH the price of THC is crashing and CBD you know CBD is going down a little bit just because it's not prohibited as much anymore, but really the demand is so high that you can't even keep CBD on the shelves. And and yet, because they think they want to decrease their risk, most licensed producers are still focusing on THC, where if I had a license, I'd be going all in on CBD because that market is going to outpace any kind of price decrease for years and years and years to come. To a certain extent, I, I'm, I agree with you on that. Over the long term, I think in the short term, at least the way that we've seen it unfold in Washington and Colorado and Oregon, and I, I'm assuming we'll see the same thing happen in, in California, uh, with adult use legalization comes a lot of restrictions, uh, a lot of security requirements, and a very, very high overhead in terms of uh, barriers to entry. You have to, have a, you have to have a lot of money to get into those markets. And the prices that we've seen per pound on uh, CBD-rich flowers are still they're they're way below what uh, high THC uh, flowers command at this point. So I think in the short term, it, it makes good business sense to get into the THC market if you're in a state legal recreational program or adult use program. On the other hand, um, and we've seen this both in Colorado, Washington, and Oregon now, uh, the the production for THC has typically outpaced the demand. And so it makes it very difficult for these farmers to actually sell their product. Whereas with the CBD side, um, it, it tends to go pretty quickly. You know, I think that's a really a really good insight. And, and I think I'll amend my position a little bit based on what you just said. <laughs> and, I, and I think that one of the reasons why the price for CBD is not on par as much with THC is because the right CBD products have, are not necessarily in the market yet. Um, you know, a lot of folks are taking CBD and, you know, spiking them with flavorings or using CBD isolate in an edible or, you know... Um, 
uh, so much of the recreational mindset of the products uh, is is not bringing products to the market that are actually is actually CBD for patients, and uh, and I think that as product designers get more sophisticated and understand patients more, the demand will increase. I, I see that happening for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, right on. Well, let's go ahead and take our uh, first short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabis policy analyst Seth Crawford. We humans are attracted to plants because they offer us relief and are a whole lot of fun. Sometimes, though, the best parts are buried inside the plant, and we need to use specialty extraction technology. When it comes to cannabis, it is extraordinarily important to extract its precious oils without changing them in the process. We want to preserve the properties of the cannabinoids, terpenes, and other constituents that all work together. Since 1994, Eden Labs has been developing extraction technology and processes to do just that. Eden Labs was founded by a cannabis-loving engineer during the early days of medical marijuana in California, and the expanded Eden team has been designing and building industry-leading solutions for cannabis extraction ever since. Eden Labs' flagship product is the newly improved high-flow CO2 extractor. As other extraction companies enter the market, it is the high-flow from Eden Labs that everyone chases and tries to compare themselves with. Not only that, but the improved automation software allows data to be collected, stored, and studied. Eden Labs can outfit your whole lab. Eden's Cold Finger Ethanol Extractor creates astonishing whole plant extracts working alone or in tandem with an initial stream distilling step to isolate monoterpenes before extracting the rest of the botanical constituents. Eden offers you many options, including vacuum distillation, column distilling, stirred reactor units, and accelerated solvent recovery. When you partner with Eden Labs, your lab team is enrolled into the Eden Labs training program to boost their understanding of Eden's best practices to ensure that your outputs are exactly what you require for your application, whether it be dab oil, oil for pen cartridges, or edibles. When you work with Eden, you're not just buying the tech, you're buying dedicated customer support to help you attain your business goals, too. You can hear Eden's CEO, A.C. Braddock, talk about the company's values during Shaping Fire episode 19 that was all about CO2 extraction. So many of the new companies in the market just smell opportunity, slap an extractor together, and hire a marketing company. Eden Labs has been listening to feedback from extractors and consumers for about 25 years now. They care about both you and your consumer. Partner with Eden Labs to extract astonishing cannabis oils and terpenes that you will be proud of. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Eden to find out more. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum. And that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means that they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from True Terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. What I mean is, other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make your blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True terpenes also have strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose true terpenes for a top shelf experience. 
Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, And our guest this week is cannabis policy analyst, Seth Crawford. So during the first break, or excuse me, during the first set, um, we talked pretty much exclusively about the size of the market and how it's just going to get bigger and bigger from for all the cannabinoids in cannabis, but at the moment, specifically CBD. And Interestingly, because of federal prohibition, there are some states where um, you're not able to get legal whole plant CBD. And, and so uh, what we're seeing in the market is a lot of folks have started extracting the single molecule of CBD out of industrial hemp plants, which um, are not only increasingly legal in the United States, but also you can buy the single molecule CBD, um, you know, overseas, and then people can put them um, into whatever the product they're making. And, you know, there's, there's become a lot of infighting between the CBD from hemp people and the CBD from whole plant cannabis folks. So let's start with, you know, Seth, how big has the CBD from hemp market become? Uh, big, big. Uh, and I think part of that is driven, you know, as you just described, folks importing uh, either uh, isolate you know, crystalline isolate from European countries or from China, uh, or importing actual industrial hemp flowers and then doing the extraction here in the United States, uh, which is, again, federally legal under the Farm Bill. Um, and that one actually goes back to 2004. That was the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision with the Hemp Industry Association versus the DEA that allowed for the importation of industrial hemp uh, you know, seed products, uh, flowers, fiber, et cetera, from, uh, from other countries, so long as it met that uh, 0.3% THC threshold. Um, for folks who aren't very familiar with what we're talking about, um, about the CBD, whole, whole plant CBD uh, from medical plants versus extracted from industrial hemp, would you go ahead and, and just give a nice little summary of that for folks? Yeah, industrial hemp traditionally uh, was, you know, we know the history of it in the United States. It was basically made illegal along with all other cannabis. Um, the European Union today uh, and individual European countries previously had allowed industrial hemp production and different different requirements on THC ranging from 0.2% up to 0.3% were allowed in those countries. And over the last 20 years, they developed a number of different varieties that, um, that meet those requirements. Uh, but to meet those requirements from a plant breeding perspective, the easiest way to do it is to just shut off the THC production. Uh, so if you'd like to grow cannabis on an industrial scale, you have to have plants that have the THC synthases essentially turned off, uh, inactive alleles. What normally happens uh, in a in a in a in any cannabis plant, if the THC side is turned off, the opposite side is is essentially the the CBD production side. So these European breeders were by accident, not necessarily understanding what they were doing, they were creating CBD uh, cultivars uh, that were then being used in production. Now, the problem with that is that to attain the 0.2% or the 0.3% uh, THC also requires that your total cannabinoid content be very, very low. And there's uh, a lot of overlap between total oil production uh, with terpenes and cannabinoids. Those two things are, are definitely linked together. So what you end up with is... Uh, cannabis plants that come in at, say, 2% CBD, or uh, I know there are some cultivars now up to 5% CBD in, in Europe. Um, but what they lack are terpenes, and, and we know about the synergistic relationship between terpenes and cannabinoids. Uh, it's a very important distinction. So on the one hand, we have very cheap, uh, massive scale uh, flowers that have been seeded, uh, you know, grown in hundreds and hundreds of acres, and then mechanically harvested, compressed, and shipped over to the United States for extraction. Uh, that's going into the CBD isolate market. And then you have other folks who've realized that, you know, 
we can we can actually make high CBD plants that are also terpene rich, um, and that's sort of been a renaissance in in breeding in the United States. And uh, it, very happy to be here in the U.S. at this point because I, I feel like we are definitely uh, definitely leading the world in in regards to that approach. Right on. And for and for folks who this information is new to you, I recommend that you go back and listen to uh, the episode about oh I don't know about eight weeks ago with um, uh, Dr. Ethan Russo, where we go through his uh, historically significant paper, uh, Taming THC, where he talks about the different components in medical cannabis and how each one of them is important from CBD and THC like we're talking about today, but also um, the terpenes, the flavonoids, uh, even the lipids and the chlorophyll for some patients. And it's how all of these different constituents work together uh, versus um, the other option, which we're also talking about, the CBD from hemp, where they're using extraction processes to to just pull out the CBD molecule and make it into an isolate, and then put that into a, into a product. Um, so it's interesting uh, when you say, Seth, that uh, to to see the folks who are buying CBD from hemp without understanding the entourage effect be surprised when they don't necessarily get the medical benefits that they were hoping for. It's it's true. Yeah. Um, and you can actually see it reflected in the marketplace at this point as well. It's uh, very funny timing. I got I, some would call it internet spam, but I got a, an email this morning from someone who was trying to push CBD isolate uh, just because I, I am working in that market. And uh, the, the prices right now for CBD isolate are half, half of what the raw um, oil, raw CO2 oil prices are in the United States. And I, I'm convinced that it's because people are realizing that the isolate just doesn't work as well for, for most conditions, I'm not going to say all, but for most conditions that you actually need to have what people refer to as the botanical drug substance, the BDS, the full whole plant extract uh, that contains both the terpenes, major cannabinoids, but then also the minor cannabinoids as well. Those seem to be playing an interesting role uh, that people are working to figure out at this point, but uh, sort of at the nascent stages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that it's interesting because, you know, the the folks who are selling CBD isolate as a cure-all, they refer to all of the great things that CBD can do, and they refer to the studies, but the studies are not using CBD isolate. The studies are always using CBD in the presence of THC and other cannabinoids, and so they're they're referring to these studies, which are not actually talking about isolate to support their isolate, which is which is a challenge. But you know, they're marketing people and they're trying to sell their CBD isolate, and and yet um, when it comes right down to it, it's 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 not a product that's going to get you where you want to go. Um, so that, that's interesting. I had not realized that the that the, the the wholesale prices for isolate had had crashed so much. Um, do you think that um, that there are any good uses for CBD isolate? I'm sure there are. Uh, I personally haven't found any. Um, it, it's not something that has been very effective. Uh, but I will also say uh, that from my own personal experience that certain certain cultivars of uh, CBD-rich uh, cannabis plants don't work very well either. Um, it's, it's really about finding something that works really, really well for your particular condition. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of this is still clouded in mystery. Um, just... In in part because you know the plants change, environmental conditions change the the, t the overall composition. Even if you're working with a clone, um, and realistically, I don't think the analytical capabilities of many of the labs are on par with what we need to be able to identify all of the substances that are actually medically useful for particular conditions. Amen. You know, the, the, we got problems all the way down the line, right? We've got <laughs> labs that need to get more uh, complex. We need more research in it, and also. Each plant has got its variables and each human has their own variables. So we're talking about highly personalized medicine here, which needs a lot more research. Um, you know, I, I talk about not being a fan of CBD isolate from hemp when when I'm doing public speaking and I always get somebody who wants to argue with me and I, and, and I have to be open to two possible applications of CBD isolate, which, 
can be helpful to patients. One is that um, it seems that CBD isolate, uh, it tends to work with, um, for some people with eczema and psoriasis topically. Um, uh, I've got patients that I've talked to who they, they aren't taking any other form of whole plant cannabinoid or THC or anything. They're just using that topically and they've gotten some good anecdotal results. So I'm open to that being a possibility. And also patients who can't afford as much uh, cannabidiol as they need. Uh, they may be taking a, like a whole plant tincture and also maybe smoking some. And so they're getting all this whole plant. So they're getting a wide variety of cannabinoids, but then they're also taking some CBD isolate to kind of spike how much CBD they're getting each day, each day. And that, you know, spiking in in the environment of all this other whole plant, I kind of got to be open to that potentially being you know, offering some benefit too, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But again, it's uh, for, for most of these things, it's you're dealing with the entourage effect. And in the case with psoriasis, uh, psoriasis and eczema, you're dealing with a whole new set of cannabinoid receptors that have not been investigated properly that uh, happen to exist in our dermal layer. Um, so again, it's just all kinds of Every time we uncover something new, uh, it raises 50 new questions. And that's the beauty of being sort of out on the, out on the outskirts of uh, something new and, and fun. Yeah, and it's hard that patients need to be so flexible at this point and also be doing so much research, right? Because when you're a patient, you, you may not have a lot of money. Uh, you may not have the wherewithal to be doing all this research. And yet the cure that you need is somewhere in all of this, all these data points and all this education that it has to happen. And so I come across folks who have spent hundreds of dollars on the wrong products and then they get frustrated and then they go back to their pharmaceuticals or, you know, it's just, it's so frustrating to see the people who are at most risk in our society not being able to get clean information because in some instances the plants aren't developed and in other instances the research hasn't been done. And so there's so much anecdotal information that people are making serious buying decisions based on. Uh, totally, totally. It's it's a problem. And, you know, it's it's both a problem and a blessing and a curse. It's difficult for people to get good information and to have, I'd say, a consistent treatment regimen for whatever it is that ails them. Uh, definitely a, a, an issue. And the normal answer in the United States and in other countries to deal with that is to go the pharmaceutical route. And in the United States, you know, the FDA uh, drug approval process is one that is incredibly reductionist. It's uh, sort of the, the worst aspects of the 20th century uh, ideas about science and, and methods that you can possibly dream up. And cannabis is, by its very nature, in its internal synergy and the way that it works uh, with, with people, it ends up challenging that, that very reductionist approach, which means that it's incredibly difficult for a large pharmaceutical company to step in and come up with a, a particular uh, formulation that can be replicated over and over and over and actually work uh, that involves all of the compounds that you would find in a, in a, whole, a whole plant extract. So, both good in the sense that um, you know it's it's very complicated, but also bad in the sense that it's it's really hard to nail down. Yeah, well said. So we're gonna we're gonna hit um, the pharmaceutical industry as a whole after the break. But before the break, um, I know you are a um, a gosh, how would I, would I would I say you're a, a a medicinal hemp breeder? Because what what you breed is kind of different, right? You're taking you're taking medicinal strains and crossing them with traditionally industrial hemp to create this kind of, you know, hybrid that grows fast and close to each other, but also has got great terps and a high CBD percentage. So what what do you what do you call what you grow? Oh man, I'm just a farmer. All right. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, it's. I would say that what what we are doing, um, and I, it's not just us. There there are others who are participating in in this kind of craft renaissance. Um, we're we're trying to create cannabinoid rich, terpene rich uh, plants that can be grown um, grown in, on an industrial scale, and a lot of that is just being made possible 
under the farm bill with less restrictive canopy uh, requirements and you know basically just a, a federal legal framework to operate under it allows us to you know at this point we have uh, we're running a, a, a test field right now we have 30,000 plants out there on uh, four foot centers um, we can go through and identify the standout candidates that are, are really doing interesting things, not only with the terpene profiles, the cannabinoid profiles, but also on the agronomic side. Um, we, we are a, a breeding company that's trying to not only make uh, oil-rich plants, but also make those plants flower at the right time. Um, you know, once you step outside of, uh, you know, growing in a small space or in your backyard and you, you apply industrial agricultural techniques uh, and, you know, try to do it organically and responsibly as, as possible, you run into a whole host of new issues. So, uh, like I was mentioning before, this is just one of those avenues within the legalization framework uh, that that's coming out. And, What's what's really driving our work on the on the terpene and cannabinoid side is the demand. As you were mentioning before, the market is actually demanding uh, uh, terpene-rich plants rather than these these uh, these isolate compounds. So I've got a really nerdy question for you. So a, a lot of people um, uh, take a shot at uh, CBD from hemp by saying that. Um, CBD from hemp is bad because there's so little CBD in any particular industrial hemp plant that you have to extract from just acres and acres of plant material in order to get a viable amount of CBD for sale. And that is dangerous because hemp is an exceptionally good um, heavy metal and toxin uh, aggregator from the soil. It just pulls it out of the soil, which is why they use hemp to clean up the areas around toxic spills and such. Now, on the other side, um, people are crowing about CBD from medical plants, but at the end of the day, they're both cannabis sativa and are, are and pull from the, the earth. So, is there a difference in the botany between industrial hemp um, pulling up toxins out of the soil versus medical cannabis plants pulling toxins out of the soil? If the toxins are there, um, they will be bioaccumulated. Uh, what we have seen, there's a really interesting paper that uh, was put out. It's a white paper um, from the Cannabis Safety Institute. It's an organization that was put together. Uh, Mowgli Holmes with Phylos was uh, one of the one of the originators of the group, and they they did some some work on heavy metal accumulation in cannabis plants. And their their actual final analysis was that it's not something that we need to worry about. I'm I'm it's something I'm I'm very worried about <laughs> in moving forward. Um, but I think it's less of a problem than uh, just traditional agricultural pesticides. One of the things that we've seen in Oregon, and I, I do want to give Oregon just a little bit of a, a little bit of a mention here, because I think in some ways, we are doing things very right on the from a safety perspective with uh, cannabis testing, uh, testing of products. Um, we have some of the most rigorous pesticide screens in the world at this point for cannabis products. And what we're finding is that even the people who are doing everything exactly right, who did not spray anything on their plants, who are operating biodynamically and organically, and, and just farming, farming in a in a sustainable uh, way they still end up getting contaminated. And it's not because of anything they've done. It's because of just how pervasive pesticides and herbicides are in the environment and widely used in, in agricultural areas. Um, that, I think, is something to be very, very concerned about. And to be honest, that's why you see so much of the industrial hemp from other countries getting turned into isolate. It's because of contamination from from pesticides. Right on. I'll buy that. Um, so let's go ahead and take our uh, second break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the opportunities in the pharmaceutical industry with CBD. Uh, you are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabis policy analyst Seth Crawford. If you grow cannabis with sunshine, you can often feel limited by the seasonal cycle. You want to grow sustainably and save money, so you use as little electricity as possible. But if you haven't studied or implemented light deprivation techniques into your greenhouse, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. By incorporating light deprivation solutions into your greenhouse, you can often add two or three additional growing cycles to your year. 
When you pencil out the financial benefit of those additional cycles, you'll realize why commercial scale light deprivation technology is remaking the cannabis industry. What used to be done by pulling tarps over hoop houses has been scaled up over the last few years in such a way that it's become mechanized, easy, and affordable to even small-scale commercial cannabis operations. Forever Flowering Greenhouses is the industry leader in light deprivation, greenhouse design and operation for the commercial cannabis industry. Their team of greenhouse experts have been in the fields of Northern California for decades, and they're now building greenhouses for commercial cannabis companies across the country. If you are new to light dep and growing in greenhouses, I encourage you to go back to Shaping Fire episode 13 with guest Eric Brandstad of Forever Flowering. I talk with Eric about the importance of intelligent greenhouse management as well as the huge financial benefit of incorporating light dep techniques. There are so many aspects of utilizing a greenhouse that can go wrong. From temperature and airflow to light dep and workflow, Forever Flowering will help you produce crop after crop of well-cared-for flowers. They can help you retrofit your existing greenhouse with light depth and other modern systems at a level that fits your budget. If you're just starting out, Forever Flowering can help you plan and build your new greenhouse so that you get started on the right foot. The cannabis business has enough risks without trying to go it alone with your greenhouse. Contact Forever Flowering Greenhouses to partner with folks who have an indisputable reputation as knowledgeable and easy to work with. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash FFG to find out more. As cannabis normalization sweeps the country, knowledge of how to grow cannabis naturally and without synthetic inputs has become more and more available. In fact, probiotic growers are experiencing large yields and exceptional terpene profiles without using chemicals banned in their state. Move away from the risks inherent to chemical nutrients and instead invest in your soil. Use your soil again and again, reducing costs and improving the vitality of your soil with each cycle. Keep It Simple Organics has been a leader in aerated compost teas for years and now provide premium soils and nutrients to the cannabis industry. They offer a full line of all-natural inputs for building your soil, feeding microbe communities, and brewing nutrient and compost teas. They can even help you test your soil to spot deficiencies that may be holding you back. Check out their website at kisorganics.com. Enter the word SHANGO into the form at checkout to receive 10% off your first order. Stop pouring bottled nutrients on your soil only to throw it out each cycle. Start building living soil that will serve you for years to come. Visit kisorganics.com and grow healthy thriving cannabis. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangalos, and our guest this week is cannabis policy analyst, Seth Crawford. So, so far, we've talked about how huge the CBD market is and why it's important to know your source. And that, of course, is going to lead us into the opportunities for the pharmaceutical industry, because the pharmaceutical industry has certainly seen the promise in CBD and has begun bringing products to the market like Sativex from GW Pharmaceuticals. But medical cannabis activists are very concerned that if cannabis is made Schedule 2, it will leave it solely in the hands of Big Pharma, which won't benefit anyone except for Big Pharma pocketbooks. So, Seth, what are your thoughts on the attempts by pharmaceutical companies to develop and profit from CBD medicine? Uh it's complicated, just like the plant, which is <laughs> why I really appreciate it. Um, GW Phar Pharmaceuticals is a great example. So they were granted essentially a, an, a monopoly in the UK to do cannabis research. And the research that they have done is phenomenal. It's actually changing the way that people look at uh, not only THC, but more importantly, uh, the non-psychoactive cannabinoids. They have a world-class breeding program. Um, they're in possession of some absolutely incredible incredible plants uh, that nobody else has. The rest of us are just basically trying to play catch up. Now, the problem with that is that we're playing catch up with, as I just mentioned, uh, a government granted monopoly in the UK. And American farmers, American researchers have not had the ability to, to be able to make the inroads that uh, GW has in the last 15 years. The other issue with this is that they're trying to basically protect their long-term profit uh, with the creation of uh, Epidiolex. It's a 20 to 1 CBD to THC uh, compound that is going through clinical trials in the United States uh, for Dravet syndrome, for uh, childhood epilepsy. Now, 
those are all really good things. Um, the, the main issue is that now GW Pharmaceuticals is engaging with lobbyists in uh, states all across the country, particularly states that do not have uh, adult use, medical, or even CBD-only laws in place yet. And what they're trying to do is lobby those legislatures to pass <clears throat> bills that essentially ban non-FDA-approved CBD. Anybody who wants to get uh, a CBD product then in those states would be required under the state law to purchase GW Pharmaceuticals version of that. Um, there's a whole host of other issues that, that come along with that uh, in terms of creating problems for patients and other types of consumers. Um, but the main issue to me is just from a supply standpoint, GW Pharmaceuticals just spent $40 million to build out a brand new production facility in California, specifically for their CBD products. Um, $40 million was how much it cost them to in the letter that they sent out to their investors to be able to produce 1000 pounds of CBD rich cannabis per year. Um, if they're successful in being able to, to lobby CBD products out of states and they put their own product on the market and they're only able to produce a thousand pounds a year, um, I think we're all going to be in a world of hurt and we're going to be paying in, in their estimates, their own financial uh, estimates, anywhere between $83 to $166 per gram. A, th for, a, th a thousand uh, pounds, that, that, that's not nearly enough. Uh, no. I mean, no, if, it, if, they, if they have an exclusive market, that's ridiculously low for all the people who need it. It, there are in the state of Oregon, we have uh, the epidemi epidemiological estimates are 615 children with Dravet syndrome, just based on on uh, based on uh, represent, uh, representation in, in the population. Um, that each one of those children require 12 pounds of cannabis, high CBD cannabis, and we're talking you know 15% CBD or higher, uh, extracted and turned into oil just to be able to to meet their needs for a single year. 12 pounds is you know significant, um, but that's something that that any any decent uh, industrial hemp farmer who's growing a, a high cannabinoid content seed can do it on one acre. And one acre of farmland, say here in the, the valley in, in Oregon, rents for, say, $300, $350. Um, the equipment that it would take to actually go out and plant and harvest an acre of cannabis, most farmers have it just sitting around. Um, the, the scale and the, the cost, the economics of trying to pursue some of these different compounds from a pharmaceutical perspective with all the regulatory burdens and investors and that sort of thing is just completely out of line with what this, what this plant can actually do um, and what farmers can do with this plant. Jeez. Um, I mean, I, I, my mind is racing ahead thinking about if, if the pharmaceutical companies are, are successful with their lobbyists to not allow um, independent licensed cannabis producers to to create and distribute CBD, and if they, you know, two things will happen. Number one, the the pharmaceutical companies will have it locked up, and 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 so ordinary law abiding people will be forced to get some kind of not whole plant stripped down version from the pharmaceutical company. But then what's really going to happen is that the, the, the gray market for CBD is just going to explode because most people know that they want whole plant CBD and they, and they don't, don't want it from a pharmaceutical company. What a, what a enforcement and legal mess that would be. Completely. And it gets even more complicated, you know, as it always does, uh, in that states have the ability to regulate their own medicines as well. And that's why the uh, that's why GW has gone after individual states trying to pass these laws rather than trying to do it at the national level. You know, they're definitely lobbying Congress and the FDA and the DEA uh, on a regular basis to be able to make their product the only one available. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, there, there's always been a lot of people growing cannabis, and that was the reason that it made, you know, enforcement of any type of prohibition impossible. And right now, the genie is completely, completely out of the bottle on uh, with hemp production and all other forms of cannabis production at the state level. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult for, for any pharmaceutical company if they don't have a, a very unique product that works incredibly well and they can get 
get doctors to be able to prescribe it. I think they're going to have a very difficult time in recouping all those millions and millions of dollars they've put into uh, to research. Um, you know, GW Pharma is one of the companies who are working on CBD products. Do you have an idea of how many other pharmaceutical companies are, have got CBD products in the works? Um, not CBD products specifically, but there are, uh, the last time I checked with the federal register, uh, there were over 60 different companies that had registered with the DEA, uh, to be able to produce cannabinoid, uh, products under the new, they, there was a, a call for proposals, uh, that the DEA put out for, um, basically, uh, new product development and, uh, production to increase the total supply of uh, cannabis that was available for researchers through the, um, the National Institutes on Drug Abuse. Uh, apparently, the University of Mississippi's 12 acres is not enough, and the stuff that they have there is not, is not good enough to, uh, to meet all the researchers' demands. But what, it, what it's led to is uh, a, a pretty big explosion of s- mostly small, but also some medium-sized firms entering into the, the cannabinoid pharmaceutical marketplace. So to go back to your one example with GW Pharma, if they spent $40 million on this series of greenhouses to, um, to grow, I think you said, 1,000 pounds of uh, over 15% CBD a year, um, will they simply just scale up? And, and produce more of those to reach demand? Or, or does scaling up at those numbers not work to bring the price down? Yeah, it's what we're dealing with is uh, the demand and the need um, is, is so much higher than what could be what could be achieved with a closed system? You know, and the reason that, that GW had to spend so much money on that is all the security requirements that go along with producing a Schedule One compound. Um, you know, the, the greenhouses have to be completely secure. The the product facility has to be spotless, and and uh, you know, cameras everywhere. Everyone has to be monitored at all times. Um, you know, if you come out to our farm, it's a field full of plants, and we don't have any of that stuff except for a time lapse camera because we just like watching what happens to the plants over the season. <laughs> uh, totally different environment, and and you know, a lot of the other farmers that are doing this have, have scaled in a, in a similar way. Um, you just, like I was mentioning before, you can't provide CBD to all the arthritic horses in greenhouses. It's, it's just not going to work. I think that's a really good point you made because um, the idea, you know, you know, the way that GW is doing it with all of the, you know, the fences and the security and the cameras and all this stuff, it, it is, it's an assumption that it's still a, prohibitive or 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 criminal drug that people are going to be you know wild drug crazed people are going to be trying to break in to steal all of this stuff that won't get them high at all you know <laughs> yeah it's, it's just you know yeah it still might be cannabis and yeah the taboo might still be out there but but you know people do not routinely steal cbd because they're patients and they're generally too stick sick to steal anything yeah, yeah. It's again. I mean, this goes back to that that tripartite division. When you've got folks that are developing pharmaceutical products, you have people that are developing uh, recreational products, and you have people who are just doing things a little bit differently on the agronomic side. Um, I think there is always going to be a market for the types of products that these these cannabinoid uh, pharmaceutical research companies are putting together, and I think that it's really important for us to. May not necessarily support a company that uh, you know got to their spot and their their market position via an unnatural monopoly in another country before Americans could actually do the research on it. But I, I think it's also important to to see the benefits that have come out of that research because I mean, as a plant breeder, I I read the work that GW Pharmaceutical breeders uh, wrote. They they published these these articles in peer-reviewed journals about how to attain different types of cannabinoids in plants. And after that, it just became a, an analytical and a sifting process for us to, to find those things. Um, so it, it's, it, they're doing good things, but when you turn it into a monopoly and you try to control access to something that is already proliferating throughout the country, uh, I, I, that's when I start to have issues and question the, uh, question the motives. Oh, well, that, that's an awesome uh, transition to our last topic, which is I, too, read the um, GW Pharma papers because I wanted to find out what was in um, 
set of X. And when it, when it comes right down to it, it's, it's essentially roughly uh, 2.5 milligrams of THC and 2.5 milligrams of uh, CBD um, in an oral spray that you're supposed to take as needed up to like five times a day. And, you know, that's so easy to reverse engineer into an um, alcohol tincture. And then like, boom, you've got whole plant Sativex that you made at home. One thing for sure, the gray market will be providing CBD to neighbors and family and loved ones probably forever now that CBD genetics are all over the country. Do you think there's any model that would quell people from growing and sharing their own CBD with sick friends now that the genetics are everywhere? The only thing that would make sense is if you can walk into a store and buy the product uh, and you don't have to grow it, prepare it and you know basically compound the the substance to to give to your friends and family and if you walk into most most stores at this point those products are already on the shelf when it comes to CBD and and i guess and and the the, the challenge of course is the model that you and i were just discussing where where CBD you know goes schedule two and isn't solely in the hands of pharmaceutical companies, that would theoretically put pressure on the states to to remove CBD from their licensing structure, which I don't know how that would work. But the idea is that you just can't limit availability of CBD because if you put any restriction on it, um, the people will will work around it because their health is way more important to people than following the law. 100% accurate. Um, I'm looking at this this move by GW Pharmaceuticals and reaching out to the farmers that we work with here in Oregon and saying, you know, if they're going to go forward with this and, and keep this is something to keep in mind as well with uh, just the way that the laws are written. As I mentioned, the states actually do have a little bit of control over um over drugs. It's not just the FDA. So if you're manufacturing a product in your state and it, that product does not leave your state, it's sold within the boundaries um, and under the, the, the legal framework of your state, the FDA can't do anything to step in and say, hey, you can't do that unless you're making medical claims. Um, so in the case of CBD and say children with uh, Dravet syndrome, we could just give it away, which I mean, <laughs> from a perspective of seeing cannabis culture change now that it's been permeated by by legal you know legalization and the forces that come along with uh, with modern late stage capitalism, um, to me that's a that's a that's a beautiful uh, beautiful contribution to kind of keep in line with, with what the people who kept cannabis alive during the pro, uh, prohibition would want to have happen. Um, so, I I honestly I think. Uh, companies like GW need to be very careful with their approach um, because people people have have the ability to to undermine what they're trying to do. You know, monopolization yeah. doesn't work. I don't think people have been saying free the plant for all these decades, uh, free the plant for pharmaceutical companies. You know, they they wanted it back in the hands of the citizens. Amen. Yeah, and I, it's I agree with that, and at the same time, I also it's I'm going to hammer it home one more time. The research that they're doing is stuff that you know I, I have a PhD and I know how science works. Um, I can't do what these these big companies are doing. They're doing some really incredible work, um, and they should be able to to get that product in the hands of people who could benefit from it. And they, they deserve to make some money off of it, but total control of the marketplace is not something that should ever be ceded to any, any uh, individual or corporation. Right on. Well, Seth, thank you so much for taking the time to be on this show. It's really nice to talk to somebody who's got a command of the economics of the CBD market like you do, um, because so much of the talk around CBD is just myth and rumor, and people are playing the telephone game with facts. So to be able to come and talk to somebody like you who has done doctoral research in this and is essentially an uber nerd is uh, very refreshing. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. You can find out more about Seth Crawford at OregonCBDSeeds.com.
You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose. <laughs>